Hello and welcome to a new conversation about software engineering. This is Sibad Wolf from InnoQ. Today on the case podcast, we will talk about Spring Data, Spring Data REST and Spring HTOS. My guest is Oliver Gierke. Oliver is the lead of the Spring Data project at Pivotal, formerly known as Spring Source, and he's also a member of the JPA 2.1 expert group. He's been developing enterprise applications and open source projects for over eight years now. And his focus is centered around software architecture, Spring, REST, and persistence. He is a regular speaker at German and international conferences. And also, he wrote a lot of technology articles as well as the first book on Spring Data. Welcome to the show, Oliver. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining in. So, um, what we are going to talk about today is are some parts of the Spring ecosystem. So, maybe we should uh, start by talking about Spring in general. So, what is the Spring framework? The Spring framework is an uh, open source application framework for JVM-based languages, mostly Java, of course. Um, and it's probably the mostly used application framework in the ecosystem. It's uh, used in enterprise applications, but also in smaller applications. Um, it integrates with a lot of Java E standards, but uh, naturally extends it to, uh, to some other areas that are not necessarily covered by the standards yet, um, and thus acts as, as a fundamental application framework, taking care of things like transactions, security, the way you structure your application, and all these things. Okay, great. So who is behind Spring? Um, It's an open source project after all, but uh, it's uh, there's a company called Pivotal, the company I work for, that employs most of the engineers behind uh, the framework, the core framework, and uh, the ecosystem projects. Um, however, especially since our move to, to GitHub as uh, our primary uh, source tracker, there's been a lot of contributions from outside that that uh, the Pivotal space and it's continuously growing and the, the integration with the community is still um, a great a great source of innovation and a great driver for us. So it's the, 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 the company aspect, people being paid for writing the software, but also integrating uh, casual con contributors. Okay. Um, I heard about Spring Boot and that seems to be one of the latest bigger improvements in the Spring uh, frame ecosystem. So what is it? So, the Spring framework is a is a very um, configurable framework. So it lays a lot of foundations for, as I mentioned, things like transactions and security. But that also means that users of the framework, application developers, have to make their own decisions about like which persistence provider they use, which um, templating engine they use for their web views in case they're writing a web application. Um, and Spring Boot takes an opinionated approach on, on exactly that uh, on top of the Spring framework. So it basically defaults a couple of decisions for you that you can undo if you, if you know what you're doing, basically. But it gives you a more packaged, out-of-the-box experience and gets you started easily um, with the framework itself and then also integrates with a lot of the ecosystem projects that we that we have out there uh things like spring batch spring integration so the workload specific uh projects that we have um there is a, even extensions on top of spring boot nowadays with spring cloud which sort of covers the the microservices slash cloud native application space um and yeah it's it's basically like think of it as a 
pivotal consultant, spring consultant, um, baked into into code and uh, helping you um, to give to start with decent decisions about technology choices, configuration approaches, um, and uh, also the the aspect of like getting your app to production. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. So um, as you as you just mentioned, um, nowadays it's not just about the Spring framework itself, but it's a whole ecosystem with uh, Spring Boot and all the other projects that you mentioned. And actually what we are going to focus today is one part of the Spring ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So we are going to talk about Spring Data. So um, obviously you're the project lead, so can you say a few words about what that project actually provides? Of course. Um, the The project started like almost... It's almost 10 years ago, I think. Um, at least uh, some of the predecessors of it uh, started back then already. It's an extension of the the already existing um, data access support that you get from the core Spring framework. Uh, the core framework takes care of like things like uh, raw JDBC access, improving that. Um, it also helps you with like setting up uh, JPA, which is the a Java Persistence API, the the object mapping, object relational mapping standard we have in Java E. Um, it it does that for you or gives you guidance with that. But um, it turned out that on the one side there was, or we felt the need to to raise the abstraction level slightly with the relational space, and also back in the days, and it was around 2010 then, um, we started looking into supporting NoSQL data stores, which um, Especially back then, we're not really well supported in in the in the Java space. So, um, interestingly, um, the the Neo4j guys, the Neo4j graph database, uh, started to work with Rod Johnson back in the days on on uh, Neo4j mm -hmm. template, um, similar to the JDBC template, which is a helper class to ease data access with um, JDBC and um, in that case then Neo4j. Yeah, so maybe we should uh, we should mention Rod uh, with a few words because he is oh, the yeah, original, of Sorry. one of the original founders of the Spring Framework itself, right? And wrote the original book that gave uh, that started the whole, the that, whole Spring idea. Exactly. Um, yeah, and um, Emil and, and Rod uh, basically put their hands together and and wrote something similar to the JDBC support for a graph database, which was kind of the starter. Um, later on, we we basically pulled other things together, like the um, as I'm probably going to speak about the the repository support in jpa and uh what have you so um can can you say a few words about why you would provide such an abstraction layer i mean uh, obviously there is jdbc so jdbc is the the usual api that you would use mm -hmm. to access databases in in java why would you add uh, an api on top of that on JDBC, you mean? Yeah, or generally speaking, I mean, also Neo4j, I assume, has has sort of a native API, so you're adding those abstraction layers on top of them, and I'm, I wonder why you why you do that. There's like there's like two aspects to that. I'd, I'd like to like sort of separate the relational side of things from the NoSQL side of things, because on the on the NoSQL side, we also cover uh, different different problems. But let's start with the JPA side, right? We already have. And, and standardized API for object relational mapping. So there's already uh, mm. APIs to map the data store onto objects. Right. And, right? and right. we could use the entity manager to, that's a, a concept from JPA, to uh, actually access the objects. 
Um, but and and JPA is the Java Persistence API yeah, that yeah, is right. standardized as part of the Java of official Java e standard. Java e standard, right. exactly. So uh, on the 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 idea we started in that on in that area is that um, usually your applications then implement some kind of data access objects, or if you're into the DDD space, domain-driven design, uh, a bit more, then you uh, think of a collection of entities or aggregates um, in terms of a repository. And what we originally started uh, on is uh, a, a mechanism, a programming model for those repositories, an interface-based programming model, so that you can get rid of most of the implementation code because um, we sort of use mechanisms that might be familiar from frameworks like Rails or, or Rails even, um, where you can just like declare a method in your repository interface and the framework will sort out the query to be executed for that method. So you, um, just, ex you just declare a method like find by name and then automatically the, the correct uh, query would exactly. be... Exactly, that, 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 that'd be the most um, simple case. There's of course like means to uh, back the, those methods with more complex queries because um, your application usually has a more complex um, querying requirements. Right. But it gives us a decent layer of abstraction to actually um, sort of, I hate to use the word hide, but to... Um, basically unify the way you work with the with the data access api that tra then translates nicely into the nosql space um, that you that you mentioned and um, there is of course the nosql space is much more diverse than the relational space where you of course have different database mm -hmm. providers but um, still they all speak sql right more or less and um, in in the JPA providers usually already abstract a lot of the differences between the databases, for better or for worse, that, that you can have different opinions on that. Um, but the NoSQL space, just by the fact that it like summarizes the entire space by something that the technologies are not, right? NoSQL, uh, basically results in the fact that you have very, very different and diverse database technologies to uh, to deal with. And the, questions come, the question comes up, how do you actually uh, ease the developer's task to navigate through that space or implement an application on top of those different stores without like or b being able to reuse some of the knowledge they have might have gained with with other stores okay so are you saying that uh, on the repository level um you can hide whether you're talking to a NoSQL database or a sql database uh, i wouldn't go that far uh, there is the, the primary benefit I think that layer adds is, first of all, convenience, no matter if you switch stores or not, because it just like it, it eases your work. And the other part is that, like, let's say you've you've worked on an on a project that has has used JPA for quite a while, and you get into a new project that uses MongoDB, right? Um, those are different data stores, and you will have to uh, cater the different traits of those stores. But still, if you if you use Spring Data MongoDB, it fundamentally works the same way, right? You still mm -hmm. have the repository interfaces, you still have those query methods that you can declare. Um, that doesn't actually free you from knowing about how to write a proper and performant query uh, for that for that particular store. But all the API or the the application code facing bits sort of work the same, just as in Spring Framework, there's uh, templates for JDBC or a JMS, uh, the messaging, Java messaging system. Um, there's completely different technologies, of course, but 
just by the virtue of the fact that these templates sort of work the same, you sort of get some kind of knowledge transfer that's 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 reasonable amongst the stores. Yeah, because the API just has you know, templates, for example, and they all feel the same because they right, uh, right. they are basically the same concept. And, and, and that's actually um, that's actually a good point to to uh, to get into like what's underneath the repository, right? The repository is the most upper. Uh, abstraction layer that we that we expose, and and that sort of can be technology agnostic. It doesn't have to be. Um, we st still uh, we try to to strike a balance there. However, there's also lower level APIs that we expose that still give you some benefit in terms of um, um, resource management, exception translation, all the things that Spring users expect usually from from happening. Um, exception translation mm -hmm. meaning. That you'll get the the store specific transactions uh, translated into the Spring Data Access exception uh, hierarchy, so that your client code doesn't have to uh, uh, catch those store specific exceptions, but rather can use the um, the the generic ones really. Um, so, so what you're saying is that uh, if I if I really need to use that very specific API function of that uh, specific data store, I, I'm free to do so, and I can um, I I'm not tied to to working on the abstraction level of of the repository if it doesn't suit me for a specific use case. Right. The, the, the templates by by uh, by purpose expose very store specific APIs. Right. So right. The, the 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 idea of that abstraction is rather a, a more technical one, even to take take care of the technical aspects, like I mentioned, but still give you the access to very store-specific things like, let's say, upserts in MongoDB or something, very specific database features that in, a NoSQL, in the NoSQL space are usually um, features that you choose a particular store for. So you, you choose a Neo4j because you can do graph traversals. You choose uh, MongoDB because it allows you to like, nest documents inside documents. And um, so... You choose them because of their special traits, and if you want to use them, you can still do so uh, behind these templates and can integrate them into the repositories, uh, repository APIs um, very easily. So that's um, that's the point here. I mean, if I look at uh, some of the persistence frameworks that, in particular, uh, customers are uh, are creating, uh, they often try to aim for. A, a generic abstraction that is, abstracts away the specific uh, data store and tries mm -hmm. to make it uh, all look the same. Yeah. So you're using a different approach. Can you say a few words about why you you're doing that? Yeah, um, I mean the, the 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 probably the most significant aspect here is that uh, that diversity in the NoSQL space. So I I don't think it's it's like a remotely reasonable idea to try to get something like Redis, which is a key value store, uh, to share some API, data access API, an API really, I mean, uh, with Neo4j, for example, which is a graph database. Right. So we, we started, we started the, the projects um, trying to do something similar, which was kind of trying to look at document stores, like the categories of NoSQL stores, um, as one. So try to sort of unify, let's say, MongoDB and Couchbase in the document uh, area or... Um, Redis and Gemfire in the, in the in the key value space, but it very quickly turned out that even in that area, um, certain aspects, especially from those from the from the store specific features um, uh, area, 
are very hard to unify because if you're like if you mm. want to use the the indexing capabilities of MongoDB, you'd have to use the mechanism that MongoDB supports for that. And of course, you can create an, a generic at index annotation, but um, for example, to to allow to define those indexes. But if they then sort of have to work the same way on MongoDB and Couchbase, that that created attention that we didn't want to to actually or that turned out to be not very useful in the end. Um, so we rather thought we'd go with the store-specific APIs on the templates level and then rather use that programming model kind of approach on a more abstract, in other words, the repository level. Um, yeah. Okay, so, um, I mean, if at least um, a few years back there was a discussion about uh, how there are standards lacking in the new SQL space. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think about that? Is that actually true? I mean, well, are, I, should, we, should we wait for standards and they would uh, solve all those problems? Um, that, that's a, like a tricky question because um, th there actually is some effort to create a JSR for NoSQL. Um, right now, there's some, some folks working on it. Uh, and we are so remotely involved with that, but I think it's it's going to be a hard thing to do, especially because the standards are usually API based, and uh, it's kind of um, the, the challenges that I just described will basically pour into that work, right? So I'm I'm looking forward to see what what they, what they're going to come up with, and I'm uh, I already shared my concerns, th thoughts, mm -hmm. opinions to, with them, um, and there there's. Uh, th there's going to be something. That's it. But I don't think that it's it's really necessary because, I mean, th there is of course Spring Data. There's even a, a CDI, a Java EE uh, based um, CDI extension, which means an extension to the standard that does sort of similar things, at least for the JPA side of things, uh, as we do. Um, so there is there are options for for developers these days and. Um, yeah, we should probably say that CDI is uh, one of those standards that are part of the Java E space, right, right. and the the JSR specific uh, specification or standards that you just talked about are uh, basically the the process that Java E uses to come up with standards. So the the standard that you that you were talking about yep. uh, is standard in the Java E space that would take care of uh, NoSQL databases for Java developers only. Right. Okay, so uh, you said that the project basically provides data access APIs for the different data source there are, like all the no, uh, different NoSQL flavors, relational databases. There is a repository concept where you would get uh, a repository uh, that gives you high-level access to, to the data store. And we talked about templates that uh, allow you to uh, work more more easily with uh, the proprietary APIs of the data stores. So those are the, the three um, parts of Spring Data that we've covered so far. Is there anything else that we are missing? Yeah, one thing that's special to the NoSQL space uh, usually is that uh, we also implement or take care of the way you map your, your store-specific data structures onto Java objects. Um, that's something right. that's covered in uh, JPA already because that's taken care of by the APIs by the standard or the persistence providers mm. implementing the standard. But the the drivers that um, we have for NoSQL databases usually expose like map-like structures in MongoDB um, or just a key value uh, 
based things in, in, in Redis. So there's still a need to to actually map those map this data to to Java objects in right. case you're into into uh, object not relational mapping but object to store mapping. And there's some generic API that we expose or an annotation based model that we uh, expose usually also more tied to the specific store. So you f you'll find Mongo-specific terminology in the mapping annotations for MongoDB, for example. Um, there's There's been a lot of, like, of course, reflection involved. That's the way that the JPA providers usually do it as well. But we've very recently, um, like, investigated, like, other approaches that make that more performant because it's usually uh, that part of the, of the data X or of our code that adds probably adds the most um, overhead to the uh, to the entire interaction with the store because of course if you like uh, read 10,000 objects from the database it's the it's the most performance critical part but um, there's been like uh, a couple of very uh, decent additions recently so um, yeah okay so that's where where you're basically doing what for relational databases and JPA does mm -hmm. um, because you just talked about performance so I mean I thought that if uh, I have a problem with my the performance of my data storage, it's probably more about the database. Now, what you're saying is that uh, object mapping might also be something that needs to be optimized. So, uh, I, I, it's it's not. I don't think it's it's a it's a critical critical part because, like, of course, if you read a lot of uh, data, then um, the interaction with the data store over the network is still the primary mm. uh, the primary driver of like or. Of like what adds up to the latency, right? It's just that in our code, there's different parts basically that like creates the repository proxies or the template implementation. That's sort of an indirection between your application code and the driver code that we eventually use to execute. Um, and the object mapping part is the most performance critical one. That's why we actually focus the most when it comes to uh, to performance mm. optimizations on on that stuff. So th there is no no doubt uh, an overhead attached to it because we have to like analyze your objects right. and use that. But that comes, of course, at the uh, at the benefit of being able to um, just conveniently map or map your data onto the objects. And there's also um, escape hatches for so for 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 that so if you're if you really find that the object mapping is introducing an unbearable uh, amount of overhead then you can like sneak into the into the code and uh, provide your non reflection based non generic code to to actually take care of that and then just like on a on a very point to point basis um optimize on that but i mean so so assuming that i have a performance problem with my uh, persistence mm -hmm. um would you say that where would you what would you try to to optimize first um how you access the database or the object mapping i mean if i if i'm if i'm using your spring data stuff yeah i mean it's it's that's probably like you, you can't really answer that without like having profiled the the, the detailed right. scenario so it's there's there's two, two aspects to it i definitely look into the query execution times in the data stores right. um to maybe add the missing indexes or something that can make a huge difference and once you've done that and you're sure that basically the 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 store interaction uh works works decently and uh, then you find okay this scenario is very slow compared to another scenario then you can look into into those mm. uh, hooks to to do stuff but i i i probably think that you're looking at the store interaction and the making sure that your, um, you've used all the means to to optimize um, the queries and the store mm. handling 
I'd, I'd start there first, just like you, like make sure you have the proper indexes in a relational database before you actually go ahead and yeah, um, absolutely look into into. Other okay, things. cool. So, um, how's the project organized? What kinds of modules do you provide? Um, so there's like roughly two uh, two separate parts to it. One is the the relational side of things that's currently only covered by the JPA module. There's of course a core module that most of the stores basically share, where we have a lot of the the common infrastructure implemented. And then there's different modules per NoSQL store. We have Redis and Gemfire um, on the on the key value side of things. Uh, there is Solar and Elasticsearch modules for the search-based NoSQL stores, uh, MongoDB and Couchbase for the document stores, and then there's uh, Cassandra, uh, Neo4j support, and we've just recently added um, a module for LDAP. Basically, it's just an extraction from the sp general Spring module that supports uh, LDAP interactions. Um, those, not all of these stores are, or store modules are maintained by the Core Spring Data team, Uh, for example, the Elasticsearch and the Couchbase uh, modules are uh, community-based modules, which means that either someone from the store provider, in case of Couchbase, um, actually works on that module, or it's even the, the community at all. So the Elasticsearch module is completely community-driven, so it's some someone um, from the entire outside, not, not really affiliated with Pivotal or with Elasticsearch or what have you. Um, Right, and then there's a there's an, another module that we get to talk on, about later on uh, in there that's uh, taking care of um, the repository exposure via HTTP resources, uh, Spring Data REST. So we we'll probably get to that to get to that later. Okay, cool. So um, you do your releases in a release train where mm -hmm. all of those modules are released at one specific point in time. Yeah. So how does that work? How do you do that? So the th um, We, we basically we have a kind of release schedule that we communicate to also like I mean within the team of course but also to the to the community projects um, and we we try or we actually actually execute a release for all the different stores at the same point in time so it's not that everyone in re mm. does releases individually um, like one reason for that is that it's just like would become we, we'd probably do releases like every two days if we if we like with the just given the amount of modules right. Um, and the other thing is internal compatibility. So in the, we we have we're a bit in, in a in a in a weird situation in, when it comes to versioning those modules because um, semantic version doesn't really work for un, for us. Um, so what is semantic versioning? Semantic versioning is basically the idea that you have like version uh, you have a very sp sp specific structure to your version tags, like something like 1.5.7, and the individual digits uh, express certain compatibility guarantees to to the to the um, to the one using the API, right? So if I just I release a bug fix release, I just increase the last version number. If I ship new features, I'd increase the middle number, and if I introduce breaking changes to the APIs. Mm -hmm. I update the, the the first digit. The problem in that regard is what is a breaking change and to whom is it a breaking change, right? Because we usually try to be, not break user-facing APIs um, and as that's usually the, the repository programming model, you can argue anything that doesn't like break that um, is not a breaking change. There is, however all the different NoSQL stores that release their new drivers or new new versions of the NoSQL stores 
in in a in a schedule that we totally don't have no control over. So like like let's say MongoD MongoDB does a new release in in October and uh, a new major release, and then there's in January there's Neo4j coming with a new major release, and we basically sit in the middle and sort of have to mitigate between the two. So. Um, we still use semantic versioning for these individual stores. So whenever there's a breaking, uh, you need to upgrade your store, for example, uh, for that particular module. We raise the ver major version number for that for that store module. We just like combine all of those into a release train that then by by purpose doesn't have any number associated with it. We use uh, names of computer scientists basically, um, so that we. That we we have some leg room basically to commu communicate uh, potentially breaking changes. That means for some user that's maybe using JPA, uh, an upgrade in the release train can be a can involve not changing application code at all. But at the same time, if a store module was involved that shipped mm -hmm. a breaking change, you'd ha probably have to do some work to upgrade and. Um, and everything would be compatible uh, that is part right. of that release. Right, that's, that's the other aspect. That, that approach sort of allows us to also make changes to the core module uh, because we sort of control the, the other modules and we can, we can do refactorings to that, introduce new API and what have you. So we have control that within a release train, all the modules work with each other. That was another, another very important driver uh, for, that, for that release train approach. Okay, cool. So... Um is there a difference between uh, community modules and the core modules in that regard? Because I mean, so far you only said that uh, that it's uh, the the software is developed by the, by other people, like not not uh, people working mm -hmm. for for Pivotal, and that's really something that I probably don't really care about. But is there a difference concerning the release train or anything else? Um, we we include some of the community modules into uh, into the release train, so the release train is not core modules only. Right. Um, however, it's we I, I mentioned that explicitly because it usually means I mean th those guys are not paid working on that on that stuff. It usually right. means they develop a, a bit slower um, and. Um, it's we, we basically it, it could be we're not involved at all in the in the in the in the development there um so there there might be some 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 or to some people it, it it of course matters whether it's something they can they can come to us for for support for example or not in the decision of whether they use a module or not but um yeah other than that there's there's no real difference actually Okay, so uh, there isn't really a difference concerning the release train or anything else? No, no, okay, no, no, it's just cool. some, some blend in. There's also community modules that are not included in the release train. That's probably worth mentioning. Uh, we usually like talk to people that are interested to join the release train for quite some time and that they work externally first so that we just make sure they're not just like dumping code on us and then uh, we, have to, we basically have to ship a, a not moving project all the time. But... Um, it's it's not a it's not a strict uh, strict separation basically here. Okay, I see. Um, so, what are the experiences with uh, the release train? Uh, is it something that you would recommend to other projects? Um, well, it's it, it it interestingly we, we, within Pivotal and within the Spring Engineering Organization, we've been the first ones to to start such an effort, and other projects like the Spring Cloud project, for example, have. Um, have started doing the same basically for the same reasons. I 
don't necessarily think it's something that you like if you're writing application code it's something that you should actually strive for um, because of course it creates a lot of coupling right between the with between the modules like organizational coupling I mean mm -hmm. um, we, we're in a special situation here because we we need to like um, sort of mitigate the ever-changing ever-changing world of, of NoSQL drivers that we don't control at all and then make some guarantees to all the downstream projects like Spring Boot or um, yeah, Spring Boot mostly these days. So we make have to make compatibility guarantees to those and that's where the release train helps especially our downstream developers a lot. Right? So it's more it's not really we, we don't really do that for them but it helps them them quite a lot because like a Spring Boot generation like the current one uh, one five is using the latest Spring Data Ingles release train and um, it's just that they can can upgrade to a release train potentially ship changes to their APIs that they, that they need to to implement and it's like it makes it easier to communicate those those changes to to the downstream projects that basically it yeah. so it seems to me that uh, this is really um a solution to a problem where you where you have a very tight coupling to a lot of projects that you either depend on or other projects that right. depend on your project. Right. Um, I mean, and so uh, it seems to me that it's 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 a solution for your very specific problem, and um, maybe it. I mean, in your case, it's probably not possible, but maybe the more wise decision would be to avoid that coupling anyway. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the thing is okay. that we 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 work on 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 Java projects that will be used and in say inside the same JVM process as other Java libraries, and 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 that means there's like mm. the compatibility guarantees have to be much stronger ones than if you say like you work with different applications and like one works with Spring right. Framework four and one with Spring Framework five and they're just like completely separated, right? And that works that works fine. And it's I think that should be the the ideal that you strive for. However, if you're like, if you have to interact with other, uh, other jars or other other um, frameworks within the same JVM, then this kind of additional um, uh, compatibility effort has to be taken care of, I guess. Right. Um, we should probably just mention that uh, on the JVM, if for, for some reason or another, it's not possible to have different type, different versions of the same library right. in the JVM at the same time. Right. So that's why you just can, you can only have one specific version at any point in time. Otherwise, you get very interesting problems. Um, okay, so that's great. Now. Um, I did an interview with, for a different podcast for IC Radio not too long ago with uh, Jürgen Höller. He's one of the project leads of, well, he is the project lead of the Spring Core framework. And there are some uh, extensions to Spring Core for Reactive. Um, can you say a few words about Reactive, what that actually is? Um, okay. Um, yeah, so the, the, you mentioned the um, the interview with Jürgen where you spoke about him with the additions that we're going to ship with Spring Framework 5 coming in uh, Q2 in, uh, of this year. Um, the reactive story or the idea of um, being able to build reactive applications with the Spring Framework is something that um, has like has uh, or the team has been has been has had a focus um, a specific focus on that for the last year or even even longer already so the idea is that you basically um actually com completely switch to a different kind of model of 
write, writing applications. Um, in Java, the the especially web applications are very um, thread driven. So um, multiple concurrent requests are bound to a, a, th a concept of a threat in, in Java. And then that threat basically takes care of the entire execution. And that means that if you're, uh, if at some point you're communi communicating with the database, like down the stack, uh, you basically wait for that the answer uh, of that of that uh, database, and that basically makes the, the the threat having to wait. That right. consumes resources, and um, that sort of works. There's nothing wrong with it in the first place. It's just that you're not utilizing the resources that you have on that machine very, very uh, efficiently. Very efficiently. That's what I was looking for. So there is this there is this idea of like reactive programming where you rather instead of like apparently like describing what you're doing step by step and basically sort of blocking on every, potentially blocking on every call to another to another java object um, you basically describe the the processing of that request in some sort of pipeline which means you just like write code without really executing it that's probably a bit of a weird thing to wrap your head around in the first place but Jürgen explains it very well in the in the other podcast um, and you get to a different kind of execution model where you sort of try to avoid uh, having to wait for someone else at um, like mm. like crazy basically so you, you want to avoid waiting for for someone else um, so basically sums up to uh, in the traditional model an HTTP request comes in um, a threat is assigned to that HTTP request if it goes to the database then that thread will be blocked and eventually when the, the data store reacts, uh, an HTTP response would be uh, sent out um, based on what the data store says. While in the reactive model, I would just take the request, work on it, and then uh, tell the database to do something. And as soon as the database comes back, then I would, um, I would react to that and I wouldn't block a thread. It's just that every time something happens, like an HTTP request comes back, comes in, data store does something. Every time something like that happens, uh, some thread is assigned and works for that short period of time unless it would be blocked and then um, it just waits for the next event and right. doesn't really block. Right. So that's the idea. Um, so what I found interesting concerning, and, and obviously from that dis description, um, there is an impact on the data store um, because in the traditional model you can wait and, and block until the data store reacts, while you can't do that in the reactive model. So what's the, what's the, the Spring Data answer to that challenge? Um, I mean, the... the, the the challenge is actually coming from like the like the the typical flow of an HTTP request, for example, through the application, right? Um, in the Spring framework, we've we've taken care of uh, making the 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 framework stack, the generic framework stack, um, and especially the web framework, um, working in that um, paradigm. So there's actually a completely rewritten. A version of the web framework that allows you to use the the special mm. API constructs that you use with with uh, reactive uh, with reactive programming, and allows the framework to not get in the way in the first place. Right. So there is some case if you're using uh, Spring MVC, there's usually a, a class where you write the code that basically uh, is invoked per 
HTTP request because uh, the, re the request m uh, matches some criteria, and then you do some kind of um, you do some kind of work on it, right? You invoke a, some service downstream, another another uh, component, the application component that eventually speaks to a database. So if you're if you're um, able to get the reactive invocation to exactly that point to the controller then the question comes up what do you do on the data side right if you if you started like issuing a blocking call to let's say a relational database at that point you've basically totally subverted the idea in the first place because you don't need to do all the fancy reactive stuff up front if you then all of a sudden start blocking right. so we so the first thing we actually need to do is sort of get out of the way in in in, in some in some regards um, which means that we um, we were looking in how we c how we can on an API level on the repository programming model level can actually make sure that you can use those re uh, reactive types and um, you you we can get invoked inside that reactive processing pipeline right. that that I mentioned before and then that of course doesn't really help if that's again backed by some blocking APIs so we were looking uh, into the NoSQL space and we're looking for um, NoSQL database drivers that already expose that reactive programming model, and it turns out there's one for there's one for MongoDB, there's one for Cassandra. The Couchbase guys actually have a reactive driver already, so we uh, took a spike on 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 those, basically just for the reasons that there's reactive APIs downstream mm -hmm. available, and then basically reworked our uh, repository and template internals to actually. Um, work with those reactive APIs so that we don't get in the way in between. And there have been, um, there is a prototype out there, not a prototype, a first, second release, a second milestone release already with reactive data access support for MongoDB and Cassandra already. So, um, yeah, that's 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 what we've done so far and what we think probably going to extend for, for, others, for other data stores there too. And um, so you said that um, you're providing repositories that support the reactive model mm -hmm. so is there any change uh, concerning the the way that i write my code is it still it, it there, there is a there is a change um that it that's not not spring data specific usually but um but a change that you have to basically go through when you're uh, interacting with reactive apis which is that as you said before you're basically reacting to uh the the mm -hmm. appearance of events right so you're never gonna uh, hand around um, like a person like if you have an abstraction domain abstraction of a person through your code but you you hand around the the idea or the notion of that a person could could like an event for that person could arrive right like with with we mm -hmm. in 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 the, in the spring framework implementation reactor um we we distinguish between a, a something that emits a single person like a mono of a person or a flux which is basically a stream of persons um, which is something you can probably better relate to thinking of it as coming from the database, right? You're not going to get a list of persons back from the data store, but um, an event stream of persons. That's right. that's the, the that's the fundamental the fundamental mind shift um, that that's to be made here, and that of course leaks into the into the uh, repository abstractions because um, uh, you have to change your method signatures in that regard. Okay. Um. So you said that this is being supported from MongoDB and Cassandra. Mm -hmm. Both of them are NoSQL databases. So what about relational databases? 
Um, yeah, there's there's two aspects that make relational databases um, sort of a not too well fit for that kind of uh, thing. One is a very technical one, which is that most of the standardized relational, not most, all of the standardized relational uh, data access APIs that are available, which is JDBC, uh, the low-level data access API, and the aforementioned uh, JPA, um, they don't, um, they've been like invented when that kind of programming model wasn't uh, wasn't even like thought of so they're all blocking APIs effectively so there's they return lists um, there's no way to actually make them reactive like in by mm. just like adding some bits and pieces onto them um, that's the one thing so that the existing APIs do, do not really match that paradigm and the other thing is that you usually the we we have to avoid the impression that you could just like switch from imperative to reactive by just like changing APIs. Right. It usually involves like architecting your system in a slightly different way and also using different technologies that then in turn support this reactive the reactive space. So the um, the 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 relational data database space is usually tightly associated with the notion of transactions, which means like creating a unit of work or something where you block resources, um, where you want to isolate things from another, and um, then execute a bit of code and um, then basically free the resource again. And that kind of blocking approach is something that sort of fundamentally subverts the idea of reactive, where you want to avoid to block resources. Um, Okay, so are you saying that transactions and reactive are mutually exclusive? Well, you, you can you can sort of make them work, quote unquote, together. Uh, you can sort of try to get them as as much out of the way as probably possible, but they then they're not really fitting the concept in the, in this case. Okay. So you you you're rather into like more fine grained interactions with the data store, um, more um, it's more of a pull model even than a than a push model like. Give me those instead of saying give me the five uh, the five customers. Rather saying okay, I'm I'm subscribing to uh, to that event stream of the customers that match a certain criteria, and then you get notified by the store. So um, that that's a different interaction model in the first place. And the other thing is that um, that for for read for read only access, you can probably sort of do something about it, but it's not. It's not the nicest fit. We, we, even internally, we're still not quite sure what what to do about that, um, about like transactions in general with 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 reactive. Um, for for the low level data access space, there are some reactive drivers for some databases because that's the next topic basically downstream. You have the, the, the database actually has to support uh, or has to work support that that way of working in the first place. Right, so, so, so you're saying even though the JDBC standard doesn't support it, there are relational databases that would support non-blocking I/O. Exactly. So there's like, for example, right. there's a reactive Postgres driver uh, that we could theoretically start to uh, to to build something on top of. But then we're basically back to database-specific integration of relational databases, um, and the entire like JPA space, for example, the object relational mapping uh, area is then. Is, is not going to be an option for, for, for working with that anymore. Okay, cool. Okay, so uh, we've spoken quite a lot about uh, about the, the different data stores and the APIs that you provide, um, the repositories and so on. There is a different project that you mentioned, Spring Data REST. 
and um, that seems to be quite different. Uh, so can you describe Spring Data Rest in a few sentences and what it does? Right. So it's, it's a, of course, a, a bit of the odd one out, basically, uh, because it's not a database connecting store module, really. Um, the story behind it is that we've, on, we've seen that, that people started to build um, RESTful APIs with, their, with the Spring Framework. That's a very common pattern these days anyway. Uh, but they were, on, they were using Spring Data and built um, Spring REST APIs in a, in a very like, canonical way or with repeating patterns. Um, and we were kind of like starting to explore how much of those patterns could be like uh, generically implemented um, in in a in a dedicated Spring Data module. So basically, thinking of it as uh, we know a lot of if you if you're like building your applications, you have your your aggregate um, roots in in that application. Basically, the entities that the repositories manage, and you have the repositories. So can we do something about? All this information and sort of generically implement some some HTTP uh, resources um, on top of that. The, one of the reasons that, that that played into that is that there's a bit of an overlap or at least a connection between some patterns that you find in in uh, uh, the REST world um, that are also described in in a couple of uh, very good uh, very good books on that topic. Um, Things like the collection resource item resource pattern, right? So you have a collection, a resource, an HTTP resource that exposes, let's say, a list of customers, and then you have the individual resources for the individual customers, and that sort of resembles to the to the notion of a repository being effectively a collection of entities, right? And the individual entities being accessible through that uh, through that repository. So there there is some some match here, um, and That was kind of the, 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 the starting stone, basically, for, um, for starting that particular, particular module. Okay, so um, as you said, exporting a repository as a REST resource seems like a great match because at the end of the day, both are about CRUD operations. Um, so what is there even to, to add? Uh, why would I even write my own REST handler anymore? Because I can just have it created for me by Spring Data REST, right? Right, yeah, that's, that's actually a good one because it's a, it's a very common misconception really about, about the project. So the, the sentiment, if, if you just like think about the Spring Data REST as I just described it, uh, you probably get to the impression that it's basically we take the data store, uh, we put that repository in between and then we turn that into HTTP resources. So what we basically do is we expose the data, database to the web. Uh, there's a couple of things missing though. Um, the the first and foremost thing is that inside your application, uh, you have a lot more knowledge about the structure of your domain, the structure of your entities, and you have that expressed in code. Then that there is available in the uh, in the in the database. So uh, things like um, aggregate boundaries. That's probably something we could discuss even further. But uh, the, the 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 boundaries, the natural boundaries that your uh, your domain model. Uh, has incorporated uh, usually match nicely onto the uh, the structure of the resources the boundaries of the resources so there's um, a lot of things that you have to teach your your let's say um, object to JSON mapper uh, manually that we can basically infer from from the domain model you have there so there's some some so raising of abstractions really in uh, and translating those abstractions 
into certain traits of your API that you otherwise have to do yourself. Okay, so you're saying that REST resources, uh, resources more like an aggregate, and that's different from what I would have in, in the database, like it's not just one table. So can you can you, can it, you explain that? Yeah, right. More? So it, it, let's say let's say you have a you have a, an order that has line items, and you have the customer that placed the order, right? On the on a relational database level, there's no difference between the relationship between the order and the line item because it's just a foreign key, right. and the order and the customer because it's just a foreign key. Uh, if you're if you're staying with a with a relational database at least. So if you just like went ahead and just like naively turn that into HTTP resources, you'd probably have a resource for the order, for the line items, yada, yada, yada. Um, but on the domain level, you fundamentally uh, usually like add additional an additional layer of, of abstraction sort of here because you, the order usually includes the line items and there's like a composition relationship between the order and the line items. So you actually form an aggregate around those two and then the link to the customer actually becomes a relation to the relation, not in the database sense, but just generically speaking, to the customer becomes a relation to the uh, to another aggregate. Right. And that's something that's, by using Spring Data and the repositories, that's something that's implicitly expressed in the code. And we can use that to actually uh, shape the aggregates around that. And um, by that, and the, the, the fundamental f uh, idea here is that um, the with for an aggregate, there are certain consistency rules that are most easily expressed if you can actually use the same shape um, if you turn that aggregate into a resource. So it's kind of a, there's a kind of nice overlap between the different concepts there, um, which is why we, why we actually make that, make that the default in, in Spring Data REST. So we will inspect your aggregate boundaries and use those to, to basically um, uh, create a, a, a defaulted representation of the, of the aggregate for you. And, and that's, that's it, or is there anything else in this mapping between... Uh, the the rest um, resources and what the database provides. There, there's an interesting other aspect that sort of basically is a consequence of us um, inf not enforcing but yeah implementing those boundaries in the first place, which is like if we let's say uh, if we take the order aggregate right and turn that into a resource and then basically decide to include the line items but not to include the the, the customer directly like not embedded into the representation. The question comes up: How do you actually refer to the customer? And um, there's a an interesting concept in REST there, which is the hypermedia aspect, uh, which in its most simple form is just like linking to different to different uh, resources and we actually make heavy use of that in the representation uh, creation for that so you would get a link to the customer inside your representation of the order um, so that a, a hypermedia aware client could actually go ahead and then like f just follow the link to access the customer um, there's a, a bit more smarts and details to that but on the on a high level, that's that's all stuff that we sort of def infer from your domain model, which you wouldn't actually get f if you j just like na naively exposed exposed your database. Okay, so what would your expectation be? So let's assume that I'm creating some kind of REST service. Would yeah. you assume that uh, I would write all the REST handling using Spring Data REST? Or is there is there something left where I would really do low-level HTTP REST handling all by myself, not using um, that library? 
that's an interesting question because I, I would have phrased it exactly the other way around. The thing is here is that you can, of course, you can get away with Spring Data REST only, right? So you just like have your entities, you have your repositories, mm. you turn on Spring Data REST, you get a slight raise of abstraction here because we inspect the aggregates and have you. You could be you could be done with that, and actually that is a is a sort of turnkey solution. The thing is that. Um, you're still on a very low level in terms of like added, added uh, uh, benefit in terms of like uh, business interactions with the service, right? You still need the client to know a lot of things about the internals, uh, the, the structures, the semantics of the individual fields and what have you. Um, you usually add more benefit through a REST API if you implement like like more high-level things in 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 your REST uh, in in that API, for example, um, indicating uh, when an order is ready to be paid, right? So if you want to like mm. assume a client that has that go to checkout car, uh, thing or something, uh, go to checkout button in a, in a mobile app, for example. So those things are not let, let's say. Uh, those informations, when can I actually execute that 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 call, is not really communicated if you stick to that level of, of abstraction. So the idea we actually have and the idea of the project is that we sort of give you th those low-level things that will be part of your API, uh, basically for free or without a lot of boilerplate, to give you more time to think about those high-level interactions with the service and then seamlessly integrate them with the parts that we provide out of the box so that you as a team can really focus on like the business process aspects of your API and um, add them to the to the stuff you get you get out of the box so that you're basically freed to not write the low level stuff like the repetitive collection right. collection resource item resource things but rather can selectively implement the high level parts of your application, uh, of your API, basically, uh, uh, through Spring MVC then, Spring Data REST extensions, what have you. Okay, so what you're saying in a way is that a Spring re a REST resource such as an order might not just be a piece of data, but actually might be a business process and might give some idea about the state of the business process, which is actually something that might not even be in the database or might not be... Uh, might not be obviously obvious if you look at the data from the database. Right, right. There's like okay. just like the the question. Okay, when am when am I in in which situation am I allowed to cancel an order? In which situation have have I do I have to pay the order? Right, and that's stuff that's not. I mean, that's sort of embedded in the data. But if you make the client just inspect the data to find out about that fact, you've basically replicated the business rule into the client. And by using hypermedia, you can sort of keep that logic on the client so that the, the client just looks for a particular link, let's say, in the representation to find out about the fact whether it, it can do or cannot do something. So, yeah, so um, links, to, so, so you could have the business process and links would actually say which transitions are possible for ex exactly, specific state. Exactly. And okay. that's, that's a kind of raising the abstraction level quite a bit more. It provides more benefit to the clients. Uh, it requires the clients to implement a bit more of like protocol complexity, as I call it, which means they have to be able to find links to interact with them. Right. But it allows you to keep the clients more free of like business complexity um, because it doesn't have to know about that. If in that field there's a particular value, then I'm allowed to do something. If I have to bake that into the client, I won't be yeah. able to change it freely on the server. Right. It's um, not. It's. It's. Uh, it doesn't need to inter. It, the client doesn't need to interpret the the data. Basically. Right. It, it right. can. It can get away with less knowledge about the business, which is a good thing because you can then change the business more easily. Uh, um, right. That's it. 
Okay, excellent. So, I mean, um, so you're obviously doing an open source project and uh, I assume that uh, basically all open source projects are looking for some kind of help. So how can you help uh, develop with, with these kinds of open source projects that you're working on? Uh, so as I mentioned, um, we like most of our projects live on GitHub. We not all, all our bug trackers live on GitHub. Uh, like the Spring Data projects, uh, in particular, usually uh, using Jira for a variety of reasons. But we that essentially means that like you can just like register there. You can have an account there, which means you can file bugs. So whenever you use some of that stuff and you find something that's inconvenient that doesn't work for you. Uh, please file a bug. That could be a, f a typo fix in the documentation. Uh, that could be uh, like something that's really broken if you have a test case or something. Uh, please report that stuff because we 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 usually find it's it's actually our uh, one of the or the most direct ways you can get in touch with us uh, because there's no if you if you just find something and don't report a ticket for that. Uh, there's like we we don't have a have a, another way to find out really un unless someone else does so. But um, right. I, I speak to a lot of people that that rather find the find something, but never take the time to the five minutes to create a create a ticket. So mm -hmm. if you do that, that's very very helpful. Excellent. So, but I, I guess some people are just afraid that they are that they they didn't really understand something and that uh, what 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 they they consider back is really just uh, a problem in, in their understanding. So. What do you suggest for for those people? I mean, there, there is we we use Stack Overflow for general questions, so I probably pr propose to just start with that. Uh, but I mean, what could possibly go wrong? In in the worst case, you just like file the ticket. We found out you sort of you're using mm. it wrong, quote unquote, um, and then that's not less work for us uh, to rather than having to fix something. So it, don't hesitate to to even file the bug if you just like think you found something. Um, if if we like just all get or mm. if if you're not offensive or anything, then you won't get an offensive response for that. So this we really really want people to interact with us, with us to to file tickets and help moving things forward with that. Okay, so what you're saying is it's fine to be stupid, yeah. of but course. it's more important and it's yeah. very important to to speak up and and to uh, to to make uh, people aware of, of the problems. Yeah. So what I found interesting is so I I always think that you know open source projects are really looking for developers, and you know the first thing that you that you said when it was about helping you is about bug reports and uh, you know getting the stories from from the users. So what about developers? Are you looking for developers, or is that not such a big concern? We usually, I mean. We we uh, especially with the move to GitHub. I mentioned that for the Spring Framework before, but it's certainly true for the Spring Data as well. Uh, we've we've started to receive a lot more like direct contributions that are usually associated to a bug that someone found because it's just so very easy to do uh, on on GitHub. Right. Um, and we're of course always um, happy if someone like contributes something. Um, in some cases, it might it might be worth just like issuing the bug report first because. As you said, you might oversee something, or some you might not mm -hmm. be aware of some of the the reasons something is implemented in a particular way. Um, but before you actually start like spending time on hacking something together, because it it might in the end be a waste of time. But uh, generally speaking, just whatever feels right for you, right? Reporting the bug first. If you think there's a there's a good contribution you can make, uh, go ahead and and just do so. So we're totally not restricted to to anyone inside Pivotal or something um, with, with that, so. Okay, cool, thanks. Um, 
anything I forgot to ask you or anything you you want to mention? I I don't think so. It's been pretty broad coverage. It's good. Okay. Yeah. So thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for for taking the time uh, and answering all my questions. Um, and have fun with uh, Spring Data and the project. Thank you for having me, Abel. Thanks. <laughs>